Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Thank you for joining with us. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, a call to submission. A call to submission. This is going to be our favorite part yet. We all love to submit, right? From previous weeks, we have seen that Peter has called us to pursue holiness, obedience, brotherly love, and for us to long after the Word of God. These commands are based on the fact that we have received God's mercy in salvation and an eternal inheritance that is being kept and guarded for us that cannot be taken away. That's the source of our joy. That's the source of us being here with joy and loving others, caring. But once again, as Dustin took us through last week very well, we see that privilege leads to responsibility. Privilege leads to responsibility. The privilege in this case, as Peter is opening up here in chapter 2, is that as believers, that as, as the church together, we are a chosen race. We are a holy nation, God's own people, His own possession and recipient of God's mercy. And all of this is because Christ, the living stone, or is the living stone, We have been accepted by God because Christ has been accepted by God. We saw last week as even though that the world itself rejected Jesus, the world will reject believers. But God accepted Christ, so now God accepts believers. The privilege is that of being one of God's own children. The responsibility of God's children, of believers, is to proclaim the excellencies of God. And this proclamation is simply that God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, This passage that we're going to look at today as we continue are the introductory verses for the next section that shares one way that we proclaim the excellencies of God. Peter's theme for this section is going to be salvation through submission. Peter will be calling the elect exiles, the children of God, the church, to submit to God, to the government, to those in authority over us, to submit in marriage and in church relationship. Peter has been moving from individual commands to instructions for the church and now to new relationships to those that are outside the church. A call to submission. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 12, or 11 through 13, or 11 through 12, I believe. Let's go ahead and read that passage. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation. Father, thank you for this word and make us sufficient for such things. I pray that you impress upon our hearts the the responsibility as children of you to, to accept and respond to your word. I pray that you give us a a great way of listening today. Let not uh, us be uh, discouraged or distracted, but Lord, encourage us through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Peter starts off with calling his readers beloved, referring to our position 
in God. Peter is not uh, remarking on his own personal feelings for them or towards them, though he does love them, but he's referring them to God. Peter's audience are God's people for his own possession. And you know what? It's just as much as they need to embrace that, so do we. We need to remember who we are, that we're God's children. We're recipients of God's mercy found in eternal salvation. Peter is grounding his command. It's going to be based on their relationship to God. He's going to describe them as sojourners and exiles, but this does not mean that they are forsaken or orphaned. Again, Peter connects his original readers as well as all believers who come after them with Israel. The father of Israel, Abraham, described himself in Genesis chapter 3 as, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Now this is not referring to a political issue, but the fact that God had called Abraham out of his homeland and directed him to abandon everything so that he may follow God. In faith, Abraham obeyed. And he spent his life as a nomad, wandering Canaan in anticipation of God's promise. He did not consider his status as a sojourner and a foreigner as something less, but as a privilege. And nor should we consider our, our, our responsibility or our position here as something less. We too are foreigners because we belong to God and our allegiances to Christ. And it's a great privilege to be elect exiles. Scripture tells us in Philippians, we've seen this before, that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. While we are awaiting the return of Jesus, you and I as Christians, as the children of God, have a responsibility. And our earthly position as sojourners and exiles is going to give us a wonderful opportunity to begin to proclaim the excellencies of God. He describes believers in, as sojourners and exiles so that we may bring God glory in a world that is hostile to our faith. As sojourners and exiles, we have a great opportunity to share the gospel. To do this, Peter urges them in that verse to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The word urge is a strong word that means to ask, beg, plead, to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, to call, to invite. It is not a suggestion or just good advice, but it's a necessary component in pursuing holiness and obedience and fear. The call to abstain is found elsewhere in Scripture in Romans. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul would write to the Ephesians, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of life with which you have been called. Earlier, Peter had told them to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, knowing that indulging in those attitudes would tear at the very fabric of the church, the body of Christ. It would hinder the love for each other that was to identify them as disciples of Christ. Now he points out that those things that will hinder them in their testimony to the world at large, especially family members, neighbors, co-workers, and those we come in contact. So abstain here means to remove, to keep away from. Peter points out that we are to keep away from the passions of the flesh. I can think of three reasons why we should do this according to Scripture in the Bible. They're here on the screen for you. The first one is those that indulge in the passions of the flesh are without hope. 
To indulge in these is to leave yourself without hope. Galatians chapter 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is the passions of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, fits of anger, jealousy, rivalry, so on and so forth. He says, these things are like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. To indulge in the passions of the flesh to you may seem, well, it's a weekend. It's a Friday night. I, I need some time to unwind. And, you know, so I'll just do these things and be involved. But yet, he says, these things will lead us, lead us to have no hope. Romans tells us, for while we were living in the flesh and our sinful passions, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. There's no hope. The second reason you'll see there is we've been rescued from the passions of our flesh. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. As you and I have to realize is that if we were to continue in the passions of flesh, we would not inherit the kingdom of God. But yet we've been rescued from it as we look in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a familiar portion of uh, passage of scripture to those in this church. He says, you were dead in the trespass and sin and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Look at verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. In verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and trespasses he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace we've been saved, and he has raised us up. We have been rescued from his wrath. We've been liberated from that. Romans 6 goes on to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey your passions. He says, Do not present your members as sin to instruments. He says, Why? Because sin will have no more dominion over you. The passions of the flesh, you think that you rule them. You think that you control them, but you don't. Reality, they control you. Sin is not something that we pull out to play with when we're bored or when we're lonely or when we're scared or have fear. It is not a crutch that we carry around to help us get through the bad times or maybe even the good times. It is an enslaver. It is a cruel master who may give you some joy or some happiness but it pays a very high price. We've been rescued from the passions of the flesh. Then thirdly, you see it there, we are commanded to kill and to run from the passions of the flesh. Instead of embracing them, instead of indulging them, instead of trying to play with them or bring them under control, to tame them as a pet, so to speak, we're commanded to kill and run. Galatians says, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. We have put them up and we put them on display and says no longer we expose them and say we're going to kill them. We understand our mindset is we see sin for what it is, rebellion against God. In 2 Timothy, he tells, Paul tells young Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
This word flesh in the scripture represents the weakness of human beings in the world, mainly sinful desires to please ourselves. And you know, you and I are not exempt from these desires and these passions as Christians. Oh, how I wish we were. Rather, they be, actually become more difficult as we understand them. The Apostle Paul testifies that he himself did not understand his own actions. He says, I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For what I do not do, the, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. That's what I keep on doing. Have you ever faced the mirror with those same words and those same thoughts? Peter is insisting, though, that these desires must be resisted and conquered, not coddled and tolerated. The reason he writes is that these passions wage war against our soul. And I think that's the problem with the church today. We have coddled and tolerated sin in our own lives and sin in the church. We think that, that sin is, oh, well, it's, it's okay. Having a little bit of it is all right. I can just take a, a little bit of it. I'm just on a diet of sin, not a full fasting of sin. I don't know if that makes sense, but it sounded good in my own head. I think you and I do not have a good understanding of what sin is. We don't hate sin. We don't recognize sin kills. Oh, once in a while, we may have a relative or a friend or someone we know who is struggling through some type of sin. Maybe it's an addiction that's tearing up their family, losing their job. Maybe it's a marriage that went south or children that are in rebellion. But we think that's for someone else. I could control it. I could deal with it. To be honest, you and I don't even really know that it was sin that put Jesus on that cross. Sometimes we're so far removed on meditating on what that means. But you need to understand that these passions, these desires, they're not little comfort friends. Or what's that word, comfort? What's, there's another word to that. I'm not going to get it. But they wage war against our souls, Scripture tells us. Later, Peter will warn Christians to be sober-minded, comfort Creature conference. I go, okay, well, forget it. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let me tell you, there are some in this church today, maybe not yourself, but there may be someone that's sitting right next to you that is ready to be prayed by the devil. They're ready to be jumped on, and you and I are not even aware of it. Maybe yourself. You're oblivious yourself. It says, resist them, be firm in your faith. Look in the monitor the Apostle John warned us in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they are not from the Father, but are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. We need to recognize that these things themselves will be under judgment. They will be gone, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So let me ask, what's your decision? Peter concurs with James, the brother of Jesus, who warned, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war among you? You desire and you do not have? So you 
murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel even as Christians among ourselves and even in our assemblies. Both Peter and James are using words uh, like battle and war. They're painting a word picture that presents an imagery that you and I are actually in a war campaign. Paul, in his letter to the church of Esophis, wrote, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. You and I must recognize that there is a war going on, and that's our passions within us. The enemy is not from without, it's from within. Big kingdoms fall from within, not from without. They weaken before they're able, their walls are to be uh, struck down. And you and I, in many churches, it's because we ourselves are not engaging in a war, a battle. We don't even think that we are in one. We're just about having our good life now. We're trying to make this earth heaven. We're trying to enjoy all that it has for us. We want to we experience all that this world has. Not realizing that each and every one of those is a weapon that's formed and fashioned against us. The depth of this battle is personal. In that everyone will struggle at different depths with their passion. There are some of you that are you're pretty good. You know, you're going through life and, and you don't get struggle with this as much, but there's other of us that, Lord, that this battle is not just weekly or daily. It may be minute by minute, second by second. As soon as you get up, you find yourselves battling with these passions and these desires. Some of us even today feel weakened by this battle. We're worried that we're not ready or capable to engage in this battle. Have you ever felt that? I know I'm already going to lose. Why, do, why am I even stepping up to the bat, to the plate? I think that's how many of us feel. That's why we're not engaged. I've already lost. Martin Luther, the famous reformer and pastor, we've been studying about him the last few weeks. He understood this battle in his own life and weakness. Martin Luther writes that as soon as the spirit and faith enter our hearts, we become so weak that we think we cannot beat the least imagination and sparks of temptation. You ever felt that way? I have. And we see nothing but sin in ourselves from the crown of the head even to our feet. For before we believed, we walked according to our own lust. But now that the Spirit has come and would purify us, and a conflict arises with the devil, the flesh and the world oppose faith. If thou then hast wicked thoughts, thou should not on this account despair. This is the normal way of Christian life. He goes on to say, only be on thy guard that thou not be taken prisoner by them. I think we have a lot of Christians that are POWs. You're prisoners of war. You're sitting in a Christian timeout. Oh man, all these Christian cliches, awful. But we're in a war. And you and I need to realize that. And Satan seeks nothing but to wound you. He cannot take your life, but if he could paralyze you, 
If he could keep you in your own prison of your own making, he would be joyful and gleeful. You and I need, as a church, we need to be understanding of this. It's been said, there's an old song by Steve Green, only the Christians kill their wounded. We shoot them instead of giving them the grace and the mercy they need. Martin Luther did not despair, but he clung to his position as one who has been liberated from his passions by the redemptive work of Christ. You gave us a quote similar to that this morning. He remembered the wonderful words of Peter who wrote that we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We looked at that just last week. Martin Luther, like the apostles and saints before him, trusted in the word of God. So he would fasten on the belt of truth. He would put on the breastplate of righteousness. He would have his shoes shod with the readiness by the gospel of peace. He'd have the shield of faith where he can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the Spirit. To that end, keep alert. Paul would continue right with all perseverance. Have you taken on the armor? Do you recognize that you are in a war against your own passions and your own desires? So I'll join with Peter. And I would urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which, war, which wage war against your, your soul. But let me give you this word of encouragement. We are not in this battle alone. Though these passions come from with our own heart and our own tendencies, we are to fight together as Christians. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Galatia, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him up in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Jesus, he knows our struggle. And if you see in the monitor, he battles He knows our struggles and battles and he compassionately calls out to you during these times. Come unto me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus promises. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We are going to struggle in this battle. You and I will even fail at times to stand firm and to flee and to abstain. Yet you and I have a wonderful promise. 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Flee, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now in verse 12, as we continue, Paul gives the principle why, the reason why we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. For he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is informing them that our responsibility as children of privilege is to witness to others and to be any stresses. It's that our conduct, the way that we live our lives, is an important part of that witness. Peter is calling them and us to maintain a life that is pure and holy. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The oldest has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So you and I are to conduct ourselves so that others may come to know Christ. In other words, our actions, the way we live, the way we spend our money, the way we play, work, and entertain ourselves, it matters. When Scripture uses the word Gentiles here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In this context, it means the lost, those that are not the children of God. The Christian life is both a battle and a witness. Our lives must be radically different to the world. Our lives are to be in stark contrast to the world. Paul writes, instead of the works of the flesh that identify those of the world, our lives are to be marked by the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, he said the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let me ask, what is your life marked by? Would your friends and family, co-workers, would they be surprised to learn that you go to church and that you profess Christ? Would they go, oh, I, I didn't know that. Oh, that, that's interesting. The word honorable here means properly, beautiful, virtuous, morally good. The goal is to provoke others to accept Christ by our good deeds. We must understand that our lives are a living testimony to our faith. We truly believe the, if, do we truly believe the promises of God? Do we exhibit the redemptive work of Christ is the question. We are to pursue virtue and goodness. However, you and I must understand that our lives are under the microscope of people who are suspicious and skeptical of the word of God and of God himself and the commands of God. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter once again. You may be there. Turn over to verse 4. We'll look at this in several months or a month or so. But as we look at that, we're going to see that Christians are treated with suspicion and hostility due to the way we live our lives. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You see that very clearly this week with uh, Vice President Tom Pence. Here he comes out and says that he wants to be uh, faithful in his marriage. So he doesn't eat dinner or go out to drinks with someone of the opposite sex, sex unless his wife is with them. Now to you and I that may say, well, that sounds like good policy. Don't be alone with another woman or another man that's not your husband. But yet, how did the world respond? They responded with, who is he? This, this, this is against the law. This is illegal. He hates women. women. This is like Sharia Christian uh, law. What's going on here? And you're going, what? But yet, they're getting on Trump and everything else for, for the things that they do with women. So you, you have it both ways. What was surprising is when Bill Clinton himself said, well, I think he's going a little excessive. Okay? Talk about irony. But they're surprised. What are you doing? What are you saying? 
He just wants to be faithful to his wife. They're surprised. They don't understand. Why are you not doing the things we do? Why don't you act the way you do? Why are you going to church in the morning? Why do you do these things? We're to pursue peace and justice and the goodwill of our neighbors. However, how that is defined is very different from the world's perspective. The Apostle John gives us some very practical wisdom from Jesus concerning the relationship that the world will have with Christ and his servants. Jesus said this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. We expose it. If the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not, and because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3, and you say, but why do they hate us? It seems like we all want the same things. All of us want uh, peace and justice and goodwill of our neighbors. We're all trying to do the right thing. But in John chapter 3, we see why they hated Jesus and why do they hate Christians so much. Look at verse 19 of John chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, Jesus said. And people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For even in their pursuit of peace, justice, and goodwill, this is me. Their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works should be what? Exposed. That's why they're surprised and malign us. Because those Christians whose lives are beautiful and pure and honorable, they can't stand it. They can't stand the beauty and wisdom of Christ. To them, Christ is ugly. The cross is awful. The cross is foolishness. Yet God says these are the very things, though, that will draw men to you, but to many it will repel him. The prophet Isaiah gives us a dire warning to the world when he writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. We are seeing this uh, it's been forever, but it's, we're seeing this very real, are we not now? Good is evil, and evil is good. That's why John warns us not to love the world, nor the things of the world, for we too will go in back into slavery, into blindness and ignorance. It's why Peter warns us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. The world will not fully embrace the ministry of Jesus. Oh, they may like some of his sayings. They may even use some of them, as we saw these last few weeks, to their advantage. Don't you love it when they take scripture for one thing and then deny it for the very opposite? But their hearts betray them. Even though believers reach out to share the gospel, to share with them the good news that God is desirous to reconcile the world, they will resist and strike out against Jesus, the gospel, and his church. Mark my words. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 11 that in Antioch, that old ancient city, the disciples were first called Christians, meaning that they were like Christ. At first, Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 that, that, what, that all came over every soul and many wonders and signs were being done by that new early church, by the apostles. It says, On all who believed were together and had things in common, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. They could not understand what these Jews were doing. 
This was so radical. He says, as any had need, they gave to him. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their home, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being slaved, but yet that did not last very long. The early Christians were accused of rebellion against the government. They were accused of atheism because they refused to worship uh, Caesar and all the pagan gods. They were accused of cannibalism in the Lord's Supper. And they were accused of leading slaves into insurrection. Paul and Silas were accused of advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. His ministry was described as men who turned the world upside down. The persecution started slowly and then began to spread over the known world at that time. And it hasn't abated over the century and even finds itself today across the globe. Just this past week, one man uh, shared that in a conversation with Canadian Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister remarked that, e now this is his words, evangelical Christians were the worst part of Canadian society. That's the top leader in Canada society. Evangelical Christianity is the worst part of it. And let me tell you, there are many who feel the same way about us today. In a blog post from March 23rd, I, I don't really blame them, to be honest with you. I really don't blame them. And the biggest reason millennials leave the church is not the reason you think. The author said this, I've got to say this as a pastor, as a researcher, as an educator, as just a Christian who cares, that the greatest single contrib contributor to the attrition rate of the Christian faith has been the breakdown of the family. We would agree. He could see, I can see now why millennials question God and his nature and his unconditional love. And this is why he says it. Listen to this. This is very important. If what their parents believed was true, the children ask, why didn't their parents live it out? If God is so loving, why didn't their parents show that same love to each other? He goes on to write, this is a generation of kids who grew up watching their parents talk a good talk on Sunday mornings and at other church functions only to fail to walk the walk outside of church. Fights, adultery, divorce had led millennials to question all authority figures starting with their parents. And a Sunday morning faith that didn't play out the six days of the week caused this generation to view people of faith as hypocrites. You want to know what my response to that is? Guilty as charged. If people have rejected the church today, the church really has no one to blame but themselves. Because we haven't been honorable. We haven't been beautiful. We haven't been the ambassadors Christ has called us to. Our failure to conduct our lives honorable can affect not only the world, but also our very children and those we love and care most deeply about. You know what I'm talking about. You know that there are people in your life that if you go to them and try to share with Christ, they may laugh at your face or just dismiss you because of who you are. You're lot like Lot, whose son-in-laws, when they heard him say, we need to get out of the city because an angel told us, laughed at him. 
I will tell you that there are some people that at the final day, I pray that they're not in the same line near me because of how I lived my life when I was younger. You're a Christian? You profess Christ? I didn't know that. I never heard that from you. Wait a second. You joined in with all that we were doing. What? Well, you were no different than us. Why does he get to go into heaven? This is a sobering thought. The theme in this passage is that we're to glorify our God, or glorify God by our living. Peter is fleshing out the very teachings of Christ who told him and taught him, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. The good works of believers are intended for mission, not for glory and praise to ourselves, but to be on mission, to share the gospel, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. Our obedience and love will be used by God to save others. What we do and think and react is important. It's the means that God reconciles the world. Thomas Schreiner, a theologian and pastor, writes that Peter's hope was that unbelievers would be compelled to admit that the lifestyle of believers is morally beautiful and this admission will bring them to saving faith so that God will be glorified on that day of judgment. Eric Rasback, a general consul of Beckett Fund, writes, For most religious Americans, faith is not some secretive activity conducted behind closed doors. For faith for them means being out in the community, serving with and for others, particularly the least among us. The way we live our lives shines. It is of a message of hope or it's a message of death. We see that in 1 Corinthians as the Bible calls us a fragrance, a aroma. So how do we do this? Well, I tell you what. That can be confusing sometimes. There are many books and many principles out right now that are proposing several ways for you and I to accomplish this, especially in a world that seems to become more and more hostile to our faith. There's the Benedict Option, which is probably the, the most popular one. This book is on the Amazon's top 10 bestseller list. You can go to it. But there's also the Buckley Option, the Francisian Option, the Coupier Option, the Wilberforce Option, the Palo-Baptist Option. I don't think that's a diet. I think that's actually something you do. The Augustinian option and the Anglican option. There's all sorts of options out there. But one that I think is more biblical than as I was studying this that I came across is called the Gospel Option by Wyatt Graham. I'll try to put this uh, uh, this week on, the, on Facebook or somewhere for you to find it because I think it's very, very good. He says, the, he writes this, the Gospel Option takes into account that Christians live in antagonistic culture but it encourages believers to trust fully the triune God. The Father sent the Son in the world for a mission that the Son bequeathed to His body, the church. It is ours. You and I have a mission. The Father and Son empower the church to accomplish the Son's mission by the Holy Spirit. The gospel option fully embraces the triune God's mission and takes its cue from Jesus' words in the following ways. One, it recognizes that we're going to encounter hostility in their mission. Church, let's quit being surprised that the world hates us, that it hates the commands of Christ. Why are we surprised that all of a sudden it doesn't embrace our view? 
Second, Jesus created the church, and no earthly power can overcome it. I don't care if they come and take our property tax away, or our partial tax away, or if they do this or they do that, the church cannot be defeated. Amen? He says the gates of hell cannot defeat it. Let them take it all away. Let them take all the rights away. It will not defeat God's church. You can't defeat the church in China. You can't defeat it in North Korea. You can't defeat it in Iraq. I don't care how many Christians you, grow, you kill. The blood of martyrs just continues to seed the grass and to see them grow. And third, Jesus commissioned the church to preach the gospel to all nations. And his presence continues. One man remarked this very moment. No Christian who ever lived before us has enjoyed so much freedom, safety, and wealth. Use it for the glory of Christ in the saving of souls. Let our love be genuine. Let's live peaceably. Let's respond differently. Let us pray and live obediently to the commands of Christ. In the words of Peter, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, for they, war way, they, for they wage war against your soul. But keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation. With every head bowed and every head closed with the worship team, would you please come on up? It's time to pause, to consider, to pray, and respond to the Holy Spirit. Pause, take a moment. What have I heard? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to me? Consider what, what He says and pray, respond to what He's calling. Are you waging war? Are you conducting yourself? Is your life a testimony? To believers, continue to fight temptation and sin that seeks to destroy our testimony. Let's commit to living our lives as if others are watching and evaluating our profession of faith. Pray for a greater measure of faith that leads to obedience. And let's give praise to God for granting us His great mercy and salvation. To those of you here today, you're believers, you've professed Christ, but you're struggling in your sin. The passions seem to get you. You're like Martin Luther. You get up and you already feel like you're behind the eight ball. Would you rest in the works of Christ? that has granted you salvation? Confess that sin and trust God that he may restore you to fellowship. Partner with another believer in those areas that you are struggling and live out your faith. To those of you who may be hearing this for the very first time, you do not know yet Christ. This great salvation is offered up to you. And I pray that you would accept it. Call upon the name of Jesus. Repent of your sin and dead works and put your turn and trust to Christ. Recognize that you cannot work your way to heaven. That's what I mean by dead works. They, they, they may be good, but they're of no eternal value. Trust in the works of Christ, for that leads to salvation. Put your hope fully in Him. Would you go this morning and respond to whatever the Holy Spirit may be calling you to do this morning? Father, we'd ask that you would just send your Holy Spirit to grab a hold of our heart and soul and shake it mightily. Lord, may we be awoken uh, from our, our slumber and our sleep. Lord, may we hear the, the horn, the call to battle. May we uh, uh, grab our armor and face it head on, standing firm. 
Give us the strength to do so. Make us sufficient for such battle. Give us a, a, a situational awareness that we may see our brothers and sisters, Father, who may be faltering, who may be falling behind, Lord, whose, whose armor needs help. And readjusting that we may bear their burdens as well and restore them. Above all, I pray that souls will be saved, that those who are lost may come to you. Let our light shine. Pray this in Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangefilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.